Good morning, Calvary. It's good to be back with you again. I've been here a number of times the last time I was here. I think I shared a little bit that, that my wife and I were, were kind of on this, this journey of church planting residency with kind of this heart and vision for, for church planting in Vancouver oriented around hospitality and the table and a community of Jesus that lives that way radically. And, and since then, some things have happened for us that I just want to give you a, a little brief update on before we step into our time together in the Word. We have, we've, we've entered into this, this journey of replanting a church in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, where Richard and Sarah Ang, who are among us today, have so faithfully served for years. Um, we, were, we were praying about what this journey would look like, and God brought before us this relationship with this church that as I, as I got to know them and pressed in with the community, realized that there's so much intertwining of my own story with this church community and the story of Calvary, in fact. As I got to know this church and realized this is a church with over 130 years of history in Vancouver and a crazy legacy of planting churches and multiplying around all of British Columbia. And there's a little, I came across this little uh, image this recently, I think we have it, very impossible to read. It's more for a visual, but I'll help you in a second. But that over here is Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. And I think if you go to the next one, you can, yeah, see, I, I did little like highlights. I know what I'm doing, okay? So that's Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, and this actually goes on a lot further below this. It just gives a little picture of like all the churches around British Columbia that source back to the faithful service of this church, and all the planting and multiplying God's done. And, and I remember being struck because I found Blue Mountain Baptist Church, where I was born and raised, uh, on this chart. And, and then, as you can see, that's where Calvary Baptist is, the other highlight. Again, kind of owing much of the, the heritage and legacy back to this faithful church community in Vancouver. And I remember being struck by the fact that not only was Blue Mountain Church planted by, through the work of Mount Pleasant, but also then with Calvary and the way where we've been the last year and a bit, just realizing that I could owe really my entire spiritual heritage to the work that God had done through this church community and, and getting to know them and just seeing the amount of synergy with their heart and who they are as a people just felt like God was bringing us and our, our vision for church planting and revitalization to this place. And so we've entered into relationship with them. We're on this journey to replant this church in Vancouver in the next year. So we're really excited about it. Lots to talk about. And we're in great need of support in that work. So we'll be at the back after. If you have any questions or would want to talk to us, we'd love to chat with you. Love to tell you more about it. How you can partner with us. Hear more about the work that God's doing. So please do come and connect with us. We'd love to chat. Um, but that's what we're doing. That's what what God has us up to now. So we're really excited about it. I'm really excited to be here at Calvary, especially on the first Sunday of Advent. You guys always decorate your stage so beautifully. So I feel really honored to be able to welcome in this season with you. And uh, but before I, I get into the word today, let me just pray for us and then we'll press in together. Uh, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, we believe that as we gather here in this place, you are, you are present. You are with us. And all that we have said and done in this place so far, all that we will say and do is for you. Lord, our prayer is that it would be centered around you. That the words shared today and the words coming from my mouth, Holy Spirit, would be, would be yours. 
that she would take them and do far more abundantly than I could ever imagine on my own. And God, we just pray for the work of this church. We pray for the work of Calvary. Pray for the work of Mount Pleasant Baptist, Lord. Just pray that you would take the work, take this church community and take it beyond these walls. Take Mount Pleasant beyond its walls, Lord, and multiply and expand. Bring back by a move of your spirit the heart and passion and drive, Lord, to be a church community that, that multiplies, that expands, that spreads the good news of your kingdom come to our communities around us. God, thank you for this Advent season and for all that it reminds us of. May you be honored and glorified and lifted up in this place, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Advent, like we've said, it begins today. And Advent is a season of waiting. And not just for kids who literally can't wait for the rest of December to be over and done with just so they can get to the gifts and the dinners, and the family time, and the gifts. No, Advent has always been celebrated, or maybe more accurately practiced, throughout the life of church history as a season of waiting. I remember as a kid, I literally, quite literally, did not sleep the night of December 22nd, every single year. My birthday's the 23rd, so I, was, I had my birthday the 23rd, and then Christmas Eve the 24th, Christmas Day the 25th, and then after that was all over, I still had like two weeks without school. I was on the precipice of greatness, and I couldn't sleep. I just, I couldn't do it. Things were too exciting. I could not wait any longer. And I would also get way too excited to find out what I was going to be getting for Christmas and my birthday. There was one year that I actually very nearly went without any gifts at all because I got busted trying to, like grabbing the gifts under the tree when no one was around and trying to peer under the wrapping. And I got a little carried away one time and I ripped some of the wrapping, which just exposed me horribly. I got busted, terrible, terrible story, kids don't follow my lead. But I just couldn't wait. I could not wait to receive this good thing that I knew was coming. But similarly, Advent is a season of waiting. And as with many things in life, our experience of waiting changes with age. Whereas as a kid, maybe you're like me, and you're impatiently waiting for the excitement of Christmas week to finally get here. You just can't wait anymore. But as an adult, some things change. And as an adult, maybe it's less that and it's more you're stressed out because of everything that's coming with Christmas, yelling at the car in front of you because they didn't go through the light and now you're going to be late for your Christmas party or for buying a gift for that son-in-law last second that you forgot about. Not a real story, I promise. Our experience of waiting changes. Whereas years ago, maybe you were waiting with just incredible anxious anticipation for Christmas, for the beautiful service at church every year, for the gatherings of family where everyone's there and opening gifts and eating food and reading the Christmas story together. And maybe over time, life and loss begin to change what that waiting looks like. And maybe now you look ahead to Christmas without that person whose presence made those meals so special. 
or having lost that person who gave the best gifts, you know, the ones, the most thoughtful, the most meaningful. Or maybe you approach Christmas and an estrangement in the family means that everyone's not going to be together this year. Or there's just a lot of pain associated with the season. I think if we're honest, that's, that's many of us in this room. And waiting in the Advent season begins to look a lot less like excited energy for all the events coming up and a lot more like waiting for that pain that you feel to be turned into gladness. Waiting to one day celebrate with that loved one again. Waiting for God to make wrong things right. For God to heal broken relationships and the broken places in your heart. Maybe that's what waiting at Advent feels a lot more like to you now. And if that seems too dark and heavy for the occasion, you're like, Brad, you come in as a guest. It's the first week of Advent. This is a celebratory time. If that feels too dark or heavy for the occasion, I have to break it to you this morning. But welcome to the age-old liturgy of the Advent season. The age-old liturgy of the Advent season. When these are the feelings that you carry as you approach Christmas, I'm here to tell you today that you're not just being a colossal bummer killing everyone's joy at Christmas time. You're not just being that. But you are joining in with the cry of God's people for millennia. The cry of God's people that says, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long must we wait for what you spoke through your prophet Amos all those years ago, for your justice to roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream? How long? This is the cry of Advent. This is the cry of Advent, the cry of waiting and longing. And I'm sure most of us here have little trouble joining in. But why waiting and longing? Why? Why do we wait? Why do we long? There, for our time this morning, there are two specific narratives that are present in the story of Advent that I just want us to fly through really quickly this morning to give us a bit of a paradigm for waiting and longing at Advent. So the first of these narratives that's going to give us a paradigm for waiting and longing is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. Now, as many in this room will be familiar with, the story of Israel is a story of waiting and longing for a Messiah, for a Savior. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram in the first three verses of Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Note, he hasn't shown him it yet. He doesn't know where he's going. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What a promise. So Abram goes. And so begins the story of the nation of Israel, a covenanted people promised by God himself to be made great, blessed with endless expansion. This is the promise of Israel. But as you may know, their story, the story of Israel, does not progress in a linear fashion. It's not just onward and upward from here. There are ups and downs. It's a very bumpy road for Israel. 
And sprinkled throughout the story of this nation, you see God, God reminds them and gives new, fresh assurances of his covenant with this people. So as they're on this bumpy road and things are not going well, God continues to remind them and give them fresh vision of these assurances and promises he's made with them. He gives Moses the law, and we see that in Exodus. And in giving Moses the law, he solidifies this covenant that he made with Abram at the beginning. He makes incredible promises to King David years later. These prophetic covenant with David about a coming king who was going to reign forever. And one example I want us to look at is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he writes this, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. This is a promise to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom, verse 16, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God continues to remind and expand these beautiful promises that he makes to Israel that Israel hangs her hat on and waits and longs for this king and waits and longs. And if you've read much of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, the prophets come and the prophets continue to add to these prophecies about this coming Messiah and King. Isaiah brought a ton of prophecies that we read every year in our Christmas services, you know. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulder, they'll call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know these ones really well. The prophets bring all these reminders of this Messiah and King who is to come, but the people waited for their fulfillment. And they cried out in the waiting, how long, O Lord? Like one prophet Habakkuk, at the beginning of his prayer to God, in Habakkuk chapter 1, he cries out to God, he says this, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This is a cry of Habakkuk in the waiting. How long, Lord, do I have to look at this? Sounds relatable sometimes. And so Israel is our first paradigm for waiting and longing at Advent. And the second one we want to look at really quickly is Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth and Zechariah. So we have this whole story of Israel that comes through the Old Testament and we arrive at the New Testament. This is the context in which we find the Gospels. And we get to the New Testament or the Messiah Testament, you might say, and you're like, okay, we're getting to fulfillment. This is where we get to see fulfillment. And who do we meet first in the story? 
Before anyone else, it's not young Mary, it's not the angel Gabriel. Who do we meet first in the story as we arrive at the New Testament, the fulfillment testament? It's a priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And what we learn first about these two is that they have lived a long life of waiting and longing. In, in Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, describes them this way. It says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Just a little detail thrown in there at the end. But it's thrown in there to, to help us see this was a long, a lifelong road of waiting. It was a lifelong journey of longing for the gift of a child that had gone on this long time and been unfulfilled. And it's, it's hard enough for us thinking about how, how difficult that might be as people in our day and age and cultural moment. But, but in their cultural moment where they found themselves, there was a lot more that went into the context of being unable to have a child than what we might even experience today. And, and many of us might mo know some of that, but there was a lot of emph emphasis placed on continuing a line, on genealogy, on the man being, being able to extend and expand his line. And so for women, there was a lot of pressure to bear children. There was a lot of pressure to be able to bear children in this kind of patriarchal society for your husband. And there was a lot of shame that went into not being able to do so. In fact, so much so that there were many laws in place in the ancient Near East of, of men being able to, to take in another wife if one wasn't able to, to provide that for them. There's a lot of shame and pain in this kind of story. And for Elizabeth and Zechariah, this had been a long, lifelong season of waiting. And they certainly had arrived at the place of the sad resignation that this longing was just going to go unfulfilled. That is, until Zechariah goes into the temple one day to fulfill his priestly duties and is met with a very unique encounter. An angel meets him and tells him that his wife, the barren, beyond childbearing years Elizabeth, is going to become pregnant with a child who will prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah. And if you know this story... Such has been the ingrained cynicism for Zechariah and the hardening of the years of waiting and longing that Zechariah actually scoffs at the suggestion and the angel makes him mute. Elizabeth and Zechariah are this powerful paradigm for waiting and longing that we see at Advent. So we have these two paradigms, but you might be wondering, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? If Israel and Elizabeth and Zechariah were ultimately waiting for the fulfillment of promises, promises being a baby who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for, and we know, we know that baby to be John the Baptist and that Messiah to be Jesus, the very reason why we're here celebrating this season at all, then what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for at Advent? And I just want to bring back up onto this screen that prayer from Habakkuk, as Habakkuk cries out to the Lord in waiting of his nation Israel. 
Habakkuk cries out, how long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. If all that waiting is over, then why does this cry still seem so fitting? Why does this cry articulate so well even today the cry of my heart when I look at the world around me? And, I, and all I see is injustice. When I read the news, or when I look at the church, and all I see is injustice. As I approach Christmas this year, and I feel a lot of the weight and burden of that. So why does this cry of Habakkuk still so well articulate the cry of the human heart in the year 2022? What are we waiting for? I want to share a little analogy for this. And the joy of being a guest preacher is that my, my references aren't tired yet. Um, though that might not even be true. I, want, I, I reference the Lord of the Rings a lot. It's like my favorite, my favorite trilogy books. The movies are also amazing. But hopefully you're not tired of hearing about the Lord of the Rings yet because I'm not here usually. But I want to just use this as a little bit of an analogy. But at the beginning, at the end, sorry, of the greatest fictional story ever told, Frodo and Sam, the kind of main characters who are bringing this ring of power to Mount Doom to destroy it. It's a crazy journey. They're finally going to destroy this ring of power by casting it into the mountain. It's been a very long, three very long book journey to get to this point. They've got here. They're finally going to do it. And throwing this ring into the mountain was going to break the power of evil at its core. It's going to win the war. Finally. And long story short, and I'm cutting some details here, but Frodo eventually gets the ring into the mountain. And the forces of good score an ultimate victory over the forces of evil in this cosmic struggle for Middle Earth. And I'm sorry for the spoilers, but let's face it, you've had time. But what's fascinating in the Lord of the Rings story is that the destruction of the ring, this monumental moment that all of the narrative has been pointing towards, was not actually the end of the story. Now, if you've only seen the movies, maybe you think that it is. But it's not actually the end of the story. While this ultimate victory has been won up at this mountain, wars are still waging down here on the ground. Evil may have lost the war up at the mountain, but the battles still continue. And Sam and Frodo, after casting the ring into the mountain, still have to make this long, arduous journey home. And so battles continue to be fought around Middle Earth as evil continues to fight for its life, whether they know that their ultimate fate is sealed up on that mountain or not. And there's a lot of work yet to do and a long period of waiting yet to be endured before this new kingdom that they just inaugurated can actually be fulfilled in all its fullness. And there's a part at the end of the story that honestly, yeah, if I'm really honest, always frustrated me in the books. And I never really understood the purpose for this part at the end until recently in reflecting on it this way. After the ring's destroyed and the hobbits are making their long journey home, 
And the preservation and protection of their home was really what they went on this whole journey for. It was their motivating factor. And every instinct in you as a reader at this point is just for this peaceful, all-lived, happily-ever-after moment. And the way to have the story conclude, because you've frankly experienced enough emotional turmoil for one fantasy trilogy, so you're kind of ready for that to be done. But the hobbits arrive home, back to this, this land that they did all this work to protect and preserve. They, they arrive back home to find their entire homeland up in flames. It's been pillaged, ransacked. And brief synopsis, there was one of, the, one of the wizards who had turned evil in this story. He's kind of fighting for his life, grasping at straws. And he's gone and he's, he's still fighting for victory. So he's taken over the Shire, which is their homeland, and he's burning it to the ground. Kind of last gasp attempts. And so the hobbits, after all of this, the climax of the story, destroying the ring, all they've been through, they journey home and they still have to fight a horrible battle for the Shire, for their home, for the world as they know it. And then they have to rebuild it. They have to replant it. And I recently came to the conclusion that this has to be why Tolkien wrote the story this way, even though it's frustrated me for 20 years. After the ring has been destroyed and the war is won, all that waiting was over. There was yet remaining a period of waiting. A period of waiting and longing for the full ultimate realization of the kingdom that had been guaranteed up at Mount Doom. We'll call this period the already and not yet, which is a theological term, which yes, describes the period you and I find ourselves living in. Over 2,000 years ago, when God incarnated himself here to take on that which he had created at Christmas, at Advent, to take on our flesh, our humanity, to come near, victory was ensured. And just over 30 years later, when that God-man Jesus Christ, who had lived perfectly and sinlessly, would be put to death unjustly for the sins of all the rest of us, and would raise again to new life, defeating sin, death, and all their consequences, to make possible the restoration of mankind to God in perfect, unified relationship. In that act, the decisive blow was dealt to evil in the cosmic war of good and evil. The war is won. The king has overcome the power of the enemy. Victory is in him, like we talk about all the time. It is finished, as Jesus said. The ring is destroyed. Amen? Maybe not the ring part, but you know where I'm going. But this is the reality and the worldview we get to live in as followers of Jesus, as children of that king. It's a beautiful thing. But if you notice... As you live life and you look around you, this world doesn't exactly look like the kingdom we thought Jesus was inaugurating. And that's because we live in this period of already and not yet, a period of waiting and longing for the full, ultimate realization of the kingdom that has been guaranteed at the incarnation. But this is why I tell the Lord of the Rings story this morning, is because what the hobbits experience after the ring has been destroyed reminds us and teaches us is a difficult lesson and a difficult reality that in this time of waiting and longing, the road is beset with affliction. 
It's a painful road. The war is won, but the full realities of the kingdom await a future ultimate fulfillment. And the road to get there is a painful one. For the hobbits, it was the destruction of their homeland, all that they had worked for. The world as they knew it. For us, it's a lot of things. It's loss and grief. It's broken relationships, broken down families, racial injustice, poverty, hatred. The list goes on and on and on. Just listen to Habakkuk. To speak vulnerably about the last year for my family, it's, it's disappointment, betrayal, deceit. For Kate and I, it's been the sadness of significant seasons of our lives ending in ways we never would have wanted them to end. It's a painful road in the waiting and the longing. And with the nation of Israel in their period of waiting, we lament. See, our two paradigms that we talked about a few minutes ago, our two paradigms of waiting and longing, also teach us this same lesson. You look at Israel, the nation of Israel, equipped with the presence of God, all these beautiful promises that God had made to them. But the time of waiting was a time of suffering. They endured exile and punishment, living under the thumb of foreign powers and rulers for much of their history, enslaved, being horribly mistreated and with their very cultural identity under threat. All you have to do is read through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to see so many painful and scandalous memories of Israel's history through the years of waiting. But they're not hidden. In fact, they're celebrated in the very lineage of the Messiah. Israel suffered in waiting. Look at Elizabeth and Zechariah. They endured a lifetime of the shame that comes with barrenness especially in that culture. Not only was the culture so heavily weighted around women procreating, but barrenness was actually quite often seen as punishment for sin. Must have been God's punishment for some kind of sin that either they or their family had committed. This carries with it a lot of deep shame, especially for a priest and his family. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, Elizabeth responds this way to the news of the baby. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. It's been a tough road for Elizabeth. Our two paradigms hit home the pain of the waiting. As we cry out and we long and we plead for the justice of God to roll like waters, for wrongs to be made right, for injustice to be overthrown by righteousness forever, this is why Advent is a season of waiting. Like Elizabeth and Zechariah, like the nation of Israel, like Simeon, another story we find at Advent, we long for the fulfillment of a divine promise. But the road in the meantime is a painful one. It's beset with affliction. It is a painful road. And pastorally, I want I want to resist the urge here to make some redemptive case for the pain of the road. I think we often do that, and we can talk about, oh, you know, God strengthens us by the pain and affliction on the road. We're better for it. We endure, and then we... There's a lot of that in Scripture, and it's true. 
There's so much truth in all that. But I think just given circumstances that many of us carry with us, especially reminded at Advent, I want to resist that urge and just allow the pain of the road to have its place. No need to excuse it away or sentimentalize it or try to spiritualize it. It is a painful road. Period. End of story. But not end of story. This world isn't the way God intended it. The kingdom has come and yet is coming. And it is a painful road along the way. But friends, the beauty of Advent and the incarnation is that it's not a lonely road. In the coming of God to this earth in the form of that little baby at Christmas, the pain of the road does not suddenly go away. I would never pretend that. But we have a God who has made sure, absolutely sure, that he is walking every step of that road with us. A God who knows pain, like none of us ever will. Look at Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. The truth of that promise should never, should never fail to hit home with us especially at Advent. Paul talks about in Galatians chapter four, four to six, he says, but when the, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption at, to sonship. Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. The wonderful message of Advent, friends, is that as we wait and we long for wrong to be made right, for tragedy to cease, for justice to flow like waters, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us in our pain. A God who knows pain very well. There is assured hope in the waiting. Because God is with us, and this changes everything. A pastor named Sharon Hottie Miller wrote this. She said, Advent is when we remember that pain, sorrow, tragedy, and darkness are not out of place at Christmas. They are the precise reason Christmas came. Our God, who has walked this very earth and experienced all manner of affliction, crying out in our pain with us, Emmanuel. And by the spirit of his son, God is and will be with us for every single painful moment on this road until he ultimately takes us to be with him where he is. The road is paved with affliction, but it is passed with submission. Friends, Calvary, submit your pains and griefs and joys and triumphs in this season and all seasons. But be reminded of it in this Advent season. Submit your pains, griefs, joys, triumphs, afflictions to God. Because Emmanuel, because he understands, because he is with us in them, because he understands pain and affliction, he is with you in them all.
And the hope of God's eternal presence and glory is guaranteed, sealed by that baby in a manger we celebrate this time of year. God come to earth to be with us and to never leave us alone. We may journey down a painful road, but it does not have to be a lonely road. Let us not forget that at Advent. I want to close with a quote from Nancy Guthrie in her book, Even Better Than Eden. She writes this, Here is the supernatural experience that God has promised. The power of Christ coming down to rest on you, to fill you up, so that you can trust him when the worst thing you can imagine happens to you. So that you can be genuinely, if not yet perfectly, content, even if he does not fill up the empty place in the way that you have longed for. At least, not yet. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we thank you at this season of Advent that for many in this room carries with it attention. Attention of excitement and celebration at what this season represents. But the sadness and loss and grief of life in our moment. And God, we, more than anything, praise you and thank you that we get to walk these days and navigate these realities with the hope of Advent, with the hope of Emmanuel. Knowing that in our pain, not only do we, do we have to pretend like it doesn't hurt, not only do we have to pretend like we're not experiencing it because you experience it yourself and you redeem it, but also in that we get to know that you walk every moment of it with us. That the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, the God of all comfort is walking with us in it. And we just thank you, Lord, that this road, albeit painful in the waiting, is not lonely. Thank you for coming to earth, taking on our humanity, bearing these burdens on our behalf that we might have the hope of Emmanuel. And God, may we as your people submit all of our griefs and pains and afflictions and tensions at Christmas to you faithfully, knowing that yours and yours only, only your shoulders, Lord, can bear the load. Thank you, Jesus that you loved us enough to come alongside. May you be honored and glorified this Advent season here and around our world. We love you. Thank you that you first loved us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.